And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, by the way, a writer in the New Testament would say later, there is a lust of the flesh, a lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Saw so the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. Saw so it was a delight to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. And the tree was desired to make one wise, the boastful pride of life. And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, right there with her, and he ate. I find, oh, I still have the sticker on here. I saw her comedian once say, this was put on by ISIS, this, this sticker. What an incredible story. But here's what I find so interesting. Why did they eat of it? They lived in a perfect condition. There was peace with God, shalom with God, wholeness with God, wholeness with each other, shalom with each other, peace with each other, peace with the earth, the garden, all their needs were met. Was it because of the serpent? The serpent lying to them, deceiving them? What's interesting is Eve saw and Adam saw that it was good food and it was desirable to the eye. It would make them wise. There was a temptation there to be like God to know good and evil on their own. So to really put a point on this, I have a question. Are we going to mess up heaven too? 
I mean, think about it. What's the difference between the Garden of Eden and heaven? Or, to be really clear, Revelation 21, new heavens, new earth, right? We, we die, we go to heaven, but heaven isn't the end of the world. We go beyond to the new heavens and the new earth. Are we not going to mess this up too? Why not? Why not? What's going to be different? What is going to result in the ability to live without any temptation, without sin? Well, I want to talk about that question, but I'm going to take the scenic route. The, I know we're Americans. We like the quick answer. Let's get to it, Peter. Come on. Little, you know, just, let's do it. Come on. Just give me the answer. You know, let's talk about it. I already have my answer. I already Google it. I already know the answer. But if you would go with me, I want to take the securitist route, the, the scenic route, because I think there's something to see here beyond just responding to this question. Okay? I know you're for, you can't say no. I have control of this room. So, Genesis chapter 1. It's a creation story. And there's been something that for years has just intrigued me about the creation story. And it's this. It's not the only creation story. There are other creation stories that are contemporary and older than our creation story. Let me show you an example. The Egyptians have stories, like three of them, that go back to 2780 or 2250 BC. And the Mesotope, I got it right on Mesopotamia, thank you, thank you. Sumerian and Babylonian, I got those. Those, there's two epics, two stories, two creation stories that go back to 1750 or 1656 BC. Ours, Genesis, now there's a huge debate, and if you'll look this up, there's lots of debate about when Genesis was written. But everyone's pretty clear that Moses, Moses was likely the writer of Genesis, and it was newer, more early, than these accounts. Fascinating. Even more fascinating is there's a lot of similarities between these stories and our story. And I think that's so cool. The reason why is because there's a lot of similarities, but it's the contrasts that are so cool, that are so different. It's the, it's the things that our story says that's in contrast, to what, in contrast to what these say. Let me give you some examples. I'm not gonna go through all of them. You can go study that on your own. But the ancient Near East stories, I'm going to call it the ancient Near East. That's what a lot of scholars refer to this time, this time period. They say that multiple gods created the world. In fact, the sun, the moon, and the stars all had names. They were gods with names. But our story says Elohim, one God, created all of it. Not multiple gods, one. And by the way, the whole sun, moon, and stars thing, I love our story. It says this. It's, yeah, there was a greater light in the sky, and there was a lesser light, the moon, and stars. No names, but they're cool, right? But no, they're not gods. There's one God. One God created the world, not multiple. 
Next distinction. In the ancient Near East, if you read these stories, people were created for slave labor. The whole point of their existence was to serve the gods, to help the gods, to do things they didn't want to do. But in our story, Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. There was very distinct purpose in God creating human beings that was beyond just serving him. There was a beauty and intention, his own image, his representation on the earth. Furthermore, in the ancient Near East, entire populations were created at once in their stories. And it was a result of conflicts between the gods. Here's, how, here's what happened. The bigger gods, these major gods, were forcing the little peon gods to do all the work. I mean, the gods have to eat, right? So the gods have to go out in the fields and, you know, harvest grain and create food. And the smaller gods were sick of it. We don't want to do this work anymore. And so there was this battle between the major gods and the minor gods. And as a result of that battle, human beings were incidentally created. And they're like, let's use these guys to do all of our work. Let's use human beings to make us food, give us food. They'll serve us. But God, in our story, when you read Genesis 1, it's very ordered, it's very purposeful, it's very intentional, and it was very good. Not out of conflict. They said human beings were created out in the, in the ancient Near East stories, created out of clay, blood, and spit. Just not a lot of respect for human beings. God, no, I create male and female in my image. And it was very, very good. This is a powerful contrast. And you see this throughout Genesis. In fact, we could say this, that Israel understood Yahweh in reference to beliefs in other gods. They looked at the other gods. They looked at the other stories, the other gods, all the, the realities about those gods, and saw Yahweh in contrast and learned and understood how Yahweh was different by contrasting with these other beliefs. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the blue letter Bible. They didn't have the, you know, a Bible on the app. They didn't have any um, commentaries. They're like learning about God as you go. John Walton, he's a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College, um, has this quote, he says, as the Bible indicates, Israelites were continually drawn into the thinking of the cultures around them. Now, I know we can't relate to that, but, but try to imagine this. Israelites were continually drawn into the thinking of the cultures around them, whether they were either adopting the gods and practices of those around them, or they were struggling to see their God as distinct. And if you know the Old Testament, you know this is true. It was this constant tension between the Israelites 
and their culture around them. In fact, we could say this, that Yahweh used the ancient Near East to help, in, under, help Israel understand what Yahweh was like. And as we can see in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, 10 and 11, 1 through 11, this really unique part, God shows a very strong distinction between the gods of the day and himself. And one of the, one of the most one of the most powerful things that God shows is this, that he is motivated by love. Our God is motivated by love. Everything he does is motivated by hesed, this Hebrew word for loving kindness, or agape, this unconditional love. God is motivated by love. And you see throughout Genesis and the Bible, over and over again, God showing his people I am a loving God. I am motivated by love. Let's talk about the flood. Because if you, if you can think of any more loving thing, you can think of the flood, right? That was the first thing you were thinking of, right? Okay, I love this. Okay, so remember I mentioned the Egyptian, the Mesopotamian, I got it right, and the Sumerian and the Babylonian stories? Those had creation stories, but they also had Flood stories. Our flood story isn't unique. There's like four of them. And they're older than ours. And because of that, scholars go, there definitely was a flood. There absolutely was a flood. If you know history and know ancient literature, which I don't, but I hear these guys that do, women and women that do, they understand this, they go, there was absolutely a flood. And when you look at these stories, there's some amazing similarities between our story and these ancient stories. Check this out. Now, the story, the arc of the story is the same. When you compare our story and these other stories, the arc is the same. There's like a displeasure with humans. The gods are upset with the humans. The god brings a flood. There's a hero that's warned, hey, a flood's coming build a large boat called an ark, and get this, this, this has shocked people, that the floor space, because like, the gods give like, the specs for how you should build a boat, the floor space is like identical in the stories. Like one story says like, it should be 14,400 cubits, and our story says, Noah, it should be 15,000 cubits. Like the, the difference of cubits or whatever the unit was, was very similar. What do you do with that? So weird. The Ark also held the hero, the hero's family, and animals. And when the flood was over, the Ark landed on a mountain. Now this story says it was this mountain, this story says it was this mountain, and our story says it was this mountain. Now, one other thing. This, and this blows away the scholars, they, they, they say this is the most paramount and exciting and interesting similarity between the stories. Each of the heroes use three birds to go find dry land of the same species, just like ours. What is going on with the flood story? 
And there's also at the very end a sacrifice offered to the gods in each one of these. Now there were some differences, of course. The size and the shape of the ark was different. The length and the duration of the flood is different in the stories. The number and the identity of the people on the ark are different. And the names of the heroes are different. And then oddly enough, the order of the species that they sent out, the types of birds, those were different. Same species, just different order that went out. And those are interesting differences. But even more interesting is this, these differences. That in the flood story, there's one God, Yahweh. Yahweh declares, I'm gonna send a flood because the human race has gotten too evil. In the other stories, again, we're back to this many gods thing. Multiple gods. And it's actually kind of funny because the God, in one of the stories, one of the gods who declares there's gonna be a flood, his name is Anlil, A-N-L-I-L, Anlil. If he was born today in modern society, he'd probably be known as Lil Ann. Sorry, I was, dang it. Anlil, Anlil declares, thank you for laughing, that was a courtesy laugh. Anlil declares, humans have gotten bad. In fact, they, this is funny, humans have gotten noisy. That was the term they used, noisy. And there's a lot of discussion about why, why is the Hebrew word noisy used? It's like, it's like the, the cranky neighbor that heard the kid next door bla- you know, playing drums and blasting music and the neighbor comes out and blasts him with his super soaker and garden hose. I don't know, but floods their house. So, um, but Anlil, back to Anlil. So Anlil's upset because humans are quote unquote noisy. They're bad. And he goes, I'm gonna flood this earth. I'm flooding this earth. We're taking these humans out. And <laughs> this other God named Ea, E-A is his name. By the way, parents, expecting parents, two names, Anlil and Ea, don't, no go, okay? These are bad dudes. So Ea, Ea says, this is the dumbest plan ever. Like, Anlil's gonna blow away the human race? Do you not know that these are our employees? This is the staff? They work the field, they, they feed us, and you're going to blow them away with the flood? This is, I am going to sabotage this plan. So Ea goes and finds a hero and says, hey, Anlil, Lil Ann, is going to flood the earth. So quick, build this ark thing, because we got to save some humans so you guys can keep doing slave labor for us, Right? That's what happens. So there's like, this, there's like this conflict. There's like this betrayal among the gods around the flood. In our story, our God, Yahweh, sovereign, orders the flood. There is no counsel. There is no division. There's no darkness or shadow. Our God, sovereign, orders the flood. He warns Noah. They warn a hero. There's different heroes. That's why I'm using that term. They warn the hero, but it's an act of rebellion. Later on, when the, when the flood subsides and the boat comes down, they leave the ark, Yahweh receives Noah's sacrifice, just like other sacrifices throughout the Old Testament. 
in this story, the sacrifice is appreciated by the gods, but it's more than that. Like these gods are needy. Like they need this. This is their food. Yahweh is not a needy God. Yahweh is not needy. He needs nothing. Yahweh says he regrets making humans. So I want to pause here for a second. Because in 2022, with all the knowledge we have about Jesus and the Old Testament and the New Testament and the heart of God, we know that his regret was this broken heart for his people. He was angry. But that anger is not from hatred. It is motivated by love. In the other stories, the regret was about almost destroying their staff, almost destroying the employees, almost destroying the laborers. That was the regret. And in our story, God enters into a covenant with Noah. He creates this meaningful, deep relationship with his creation. And in the other stories, there's this like weird codependency thing going on, what they call the scholars call the great symbiosis. It's like this weird relationship between the, the, these multiple pluralistic gods and the humans and how they both kind of like are enmeshed in culture and all sorts of things. Just a messy relationship. But this relationship, this nut covenant with Noah, is motivated and based on love and fidelity and trust and permanence. Genesis 9 says this. This is God saying to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I've set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Do you get a glimpse, just get a taste of like God seeing humankind moving away from him, moving away from the original design, and God's walking right alongside, allowing them to have their freedom, but he's entering into the story over and over again, showing the Israelites, showing the people of the world what he is like. I don't know about you, but that like, oh, it excites me. It shows me the heart of God. The heart of God. And it's beautiful. And it's glorious. And it's, it's, God's heart is willing to get into the mess. And believe me, it was messy. It was messy. In Genesis 1, we have the creation, we have the fall, we have the flood, and we have the Tower of Babel. That's like Genesis 1 through 11. And scholars say it's this really unique part of Genesis. It's different than the rest of Genesis. And John Walton says they consider all of Genesis the genre of theological history, which is basically this. It's history that's interested in talking about how God interacted with people in space and time. It's looking at all these events and culture and everything that's going on in the world and seeing how God interacted with his people. And there's a pattern. The pattern is this. Humans are sinners. Humans sin. God consistently judges sinners. You see that over and over again. I'll show you an example. A couple examples. And then... 
He doesn't leave it there. He extends a gracious act of love. He does this over and over again. Adam and Eve reject God. They decide for themselves what's right or wrong. What does God do? There's judgment. He kicks them out of the garden. And now Adam and Eve must struggle with hostility, relational dysfunction, difficult work, even death. But look at number three. At the point of the rebellion, where God is heartbroken that Adam and Eve decided to go their own direction, that they saw that they were naked, that they were like covering themselves, they were ashamed to be with God, that they have now been kicked out of the garden and now they're separated from God and now there's brokenness among relationships between God and people and themselves and the earth. In the midst of all that, which is breaking God's heart, look at this act of grace. The Lord God, Yahweh, made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and he clothed them. This little yet very significant act of grace. Okay, you're going to go that direction? You're going to go to that party? You're going to go do that thing? There are severe consequences. Things aren't going to be the same. But here's your coat. Here's your shoes. Here's some money. Don't do this. I don't want this, but here's your coat, here's your shoes, here's some money. And I'm not going to forsake you, I'm be with you. Cain kills Abel. Judgment, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. That is, that is Cain's punishment. But then Cain makes the statement. He's like, okay, I, I guess I'm, I'm going to be working the ground. He's like, he's broken. He's like, I, I and, and he, he kind of repeats this, this verse. And at the very end, he says, and someone, I, I'm just guessing, someone's going to come along and kill me too. Look at God's response. The Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord shall put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. He puts this mark on a murderer and says, no one will touch Cain. In the midst of this judgment, in the midst of this punishment, there is grace. Right here in Genesis 4. Right at the beginning, God is showing his people, I'm different, I'm different, I'm different than these other gods. And then like we talked about, the flood, sins everywhere. God creates a flood, but he allows humanity to survive via Noah and the ark, and he creates a covenant with Noah. That's the grace. And in terms of that too, I just want to point out as well that that God is like serious about this, this um, covenant piece. And you know this if you know the Old Testament. That he, not only does he create a covenant, but he creates a sign. This reminder. This constant reminder. Like with Noah, he creates the rainbow. With Abraham's circumcision. With Moses' Sabbath. And with Jesus, the Lord's Supper. He puts these tangible things in front of us to go, Remember my love. 
Remember my covenant that I made with you. God is motivated by love. So this is the last part of the sermon. And at this point, after Genesis 11, there's a shift in Genesis. And you know this. If you've read Genesis, there's a new strategy. Abraham. The rest of Genesis is like this interesting focus on unique individual people. So there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, and there's Joseph. And there's this focus on each one of them. It's God's new strategy now. And he says, God says to Abraham, maybe you've seen this, go from your country and your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Monumental verse. It continues, and there's more. I, 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 there's a lot I don't have here. It says, and he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars, and if you're able to number them. He said to them, that's going to be your offspring. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Covenant. Critical. Foundational to what God is doing in Genesis. This new strategy, creating covenants with, God creating covenants with his people, with Noah, and now with Abraham. And in our, in our world, we think of marriage often as a covenant, right? Stand in front of the altar, till death do his part, his sickness and his health. I do, I do, we make an oath. But, at those times, they knew how to make an oath. Like, like, this is serious stuff. Like, when you made an oath back then, like, let me just show you. Um, there's, this, there's this passage in Jeremiah 34 where God's really upset. And he says this. He goes, there's these men who transgressed my, my covenant, and they didn't keep the terms of the covenant. So I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. What? And all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf, I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. So apparently some people broke the covenant and there's this reference to a calf being cut in two and passing between parts. Let me explain what's going on here. In the ancient Near East, when you'd make a covenant with another person, you would take an animal like this. These are like my dog's toys. You would take an animal, you'd slay it, these are slayed, pre-slayed, you'd cut it, you'd split it in half, and you'd put it on the ground. They'd be split. And then you and your covenant partner, whoever it was that you're making an oath with, would walk between the two pieces. And basically you were saying this. If I didn't hold up the end of my, if I don't hold up the end of the deal, then may I be like these animals. May I be cut off. May I be destroyed just like these animals. It's pretty heavy stuff, right? I mean, I do. I mean, there's that, right? And it's like, <laughs> like a heifer cut in half. Now check this out. 
Look, I think this next story I'm about to show you is one we, is like, we don't talk about it, but it's like, it's huge. It's huge. Here we go. I think we should talk about this every year, this story. God says to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And so Abraham knows immediately what's going on here. He knows exactly what's about to happen. So Abraham brings all of these things. He cuts them in half. He lays them out like this, over against each other in half. He didn't cut the birds in half. I won't get into that. There's like a whole like regulation around birds. And when the birds of prey come down the carcasses, Abraham shoes them away. So he keeps them, keeps the birds away. Now, check this out. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on Abram. And the, the, the commentators about this are like, there's something really big going on here. And there's a lot of discussion about this dreadful and great darkness. It wasn't just a deep sleep, but like there was like this oppression or like this heaviness or something that fell on Abram. And then God said this, Yahweh says to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, foreigners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And a lot of discussions like, like the reality of this coming affliction on Abraham's family is so heavy and they, like, he's just feeling like there's some rough, long days ahead. But I, Yahweh, will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions and as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried in a good old age. I'm holding up my bargain, God's saying. This is the deal. But Abraham's kind of like, how do I know? Well, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these two pieces, these pieces, these animals. He sees this vision of a torch walking through the animals split in half. And in the scriptures, the, the commentators say this, this mention of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. It's like the same language they use on the pillar that the fire that the people of God follow. It's God's presence. God walks through the broken pieces. God walks through and passes by the split animals to say this, if I don't do what I say, if I'm not faithful, God says, Yahweh says, then let me be cut off like these animals. May the destruction that happened to these animals happen to me. But that's not the end. Did you notice something was missing? It was just God. Like, there wasn't another, Abram wasn't walking with God. It was just God saying this. If you, Abram, don't do what you say, if you're not faithful to the covenant, then let me, Yahweh, be cut off. 
Abram, if you're not faithful, let the destruction that happened to these animals happen to me. Hallelujah. That's the God we serve. How incredible. And it, we know it did happen. Isaiah 53 says this. Jesus was cut off, cut out of the land of the living. God, Yahweh, was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. It happened. Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was a darkness, a deep, dreadful darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let this hit you. Let this picture hit you like it hit Abram. It is profound. God is motivated by love. Agape love. I said, this loving kindness. So let me ask you a question. How do we apply this today? One thought. What lens, which lens is interpreting your world? Is it the lens of the Mesopotamians, Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians? Is it the lens of the culture interpreting this, your world today? That you look at your circumstances and your situations and your plans and your future and your family and your, and your job and you look at your day today and Mother's Day, you look, at, you look at this coming week and things like that and are you purely seeing it through like a, car, a carnal, hu, carnal human perspective? Like flesh and blood and, and, and the principles of this world and, and the patterns of this world. Are you seeing, interpreting your world that way? Or are you seeing it through Yahweh's lens? Apply this now in your life. And let God surprise you and show you his amazing grace. Let God show you that he is good. That he is loving. Yes, in that situation. Yes, in that circumstance. Yes, in your life. That's my prayer for you this morning, is that you would consider the lenses that you have on, that you, as, as we live in this cultural river, where there's all sorts of things coming at us, that we would seek God's lens Yahweh's lens, his interpretation of our situation in our life. And that in that, we would know and see that God is motivated by love and is love. Oh, I, sorry, I, um, I didn't answer this question. Like, are we going to mess up heaven too? So, well, worship team's here. Uh, I got about 400 more slides. Here's the deal. Let's, we'll come back on the 22nd and we'll continue this conversation, okay? So let's pray. Will you stand with me? Father in heaven, we are blown away by your love. 
thank you for this new vision of Genesis and seeing how you were using these stories to show your people what you're like. Oh God, I'm, I'm so moved by Genesis 3.21 that you, you made clothes for Adam and Eve in the midst of their rebellion. loving father, a loving mother, like that's, that's, that, that's that parent love that you bring to your creation, this amazing love. I'm so moved by this picture of the, you walking between the pieces, alone, taking on both sides of the covenants. We want to see you for who you are. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and break through all the noise and break through all the cultural distortion of love, of justice, of how we see each other and how we see you. That you would break through that. In Jesus' name, you would break through all those obstacles that are between us and you today, God. Break through that by your power. Holy Spirit, come and rain down on this place and bust through those walls and those obstacles that are keeping us from having a deep relationship with you, Lord. I pray for the Christians in this room who've been in church for their entire life. Breathe new life into them today, God. May they be inspired by your amazing love. For those who are newer Christians who are just learning to follow you, God, show them more and more of who you are and why your way is better and show them what you're doing in the world and how you want them to partner with you in the mission. And God, I pray for the one who's here today who does not have faith does not see you. Holy Spirit, come. Show them who you are in your ways. Have your way, Lord, in this place. We worship you, God, for who you are, for all the things that you've done, for your amazing love. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen.